It's on page 799. So reading from Romans chapter 7, 1 to 6. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives? For example, by law a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. Amen. We've been working through our, our way through Exodus in recent times and have looked at the Ten Commandments. Uh, for this week, we're looking at a number of Bible passages. One of them is just the section in Romans 7. But the reason we're doing that is because we're getting a handle on uh, the law and the gospel. That's the topic of the talks. If you've got your outline there, you can see where I'm going in this. But Scott invited me to just do a little summary talk as we're passing our way through Exodus. So that's what I'm planning to do this morning. And uh, it's not filled with humour. <laughs> this is as good as we're going to get for humour. Um, and it's a bit of Bible to flip up. So if you're, if you're not really interested in flipping Bibles and you'd prefer to listen, that's okay. Relax. Uh, just tune in and stay with me. Uh, but if you're a Bible flipper, that's a good thing to do as well. And uh, feel free to flip away as we look at some of the um, parts of the Bible which help us to understand about law and gospel. Well, let's pray and then wrestle with this section. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time we share together now. And we pray that you'd help us to be clearer uh, in our understanding about how... Uh, the law fits together in your plans. And we pr pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what are we to do with the law? When Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for their approach to God and to God's law, uh, he uses some very stark language. Let me read to you from Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint, deal and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. To start with, we see they're very fastidious. They're, they're very keen to observe the law. They even tithe their little garden herbs. You know those little herbs you have out in your balcony? They even take a 10% of those and they give them them. So they're very keen. But he goes on to say, justice, but you ne neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. As I said, very vivid language to chastise the Pharisees for their approach. 
Well, it's one thing for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the Sadducees to have mangled or, if you like, butchered their approach to God's law. That's one thing. But what about us? What are we to do with God's law? As Christians, how should we be handling it? And what place should God's law be occupying in our life, if any? Well, the first thing that I'd like to note in this discussion is that the law is good. It was good in the past. That's one of the first things we see from Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 4. He speaks to them, and the Israelites, and says, the other nations are going to talk about you and the good laws that you've got. This is what he says to them. Other nations would say, surely this is a great nation. This great nation is a wise and understanding people on account of the law. And he continues, he says, For what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? So Moses is saying this is a, this is a great gift from God. And God's laws reminded the people that God was holy. It taught that life and blessing and salvation depended on God and his sacrificial system for the people. It made their sin obvious and it made it obvious that they needed that way of dealing with their sin that God provided. And life in the land, if it was regulated by the laws that God handed down, would have been actually a very wonderful experience. In fact, we're told that there weren't going to be any poor in the land. This is what uh, Moses says in Deuteronomy 15. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you, for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. There were not going to be any poor in the land because the law provided for the poor to get looked after. They actually lived the way God called them to live. And so we see in the first instance that the law is actually a good gift from God to Israel. But it's also a good thing now. That's when we turn to the New Testament. Uh, we can see Paul's assessment of it in Romans chapter 7. He asks, even though Christians aren't under law, is the law sin? And he answers his own question and says, by no means. And he makes the case for showing how the law can show sin for what it is. He says, I wouldn't have known what it meant to covet, what it was to covet, unless the law said, do not covet. And he concludes by saying, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And so Paul's view of the law is that it's actually a good thing as well. But it's a question about how Christians handle it. Well, the reason why the law is good is because of the different roles that it has. We're in the second point of the outline, if you're following along there. Firstly, in God's law, he establishes the terms for his relationship with Israel. Uh, God rescues them out of slavery in Egypt and establishes the, the relationship with them. They were to be his people and he was to be their God. And the law described the kind of way that they were to be his people under the old covenant. Now, over the past few weeks, we've looked at the Ten Commandments and we've looked at the Book of the Covenant and we've seen how the Israelites were called to live as God's people. Since they had been already saved by his grace, then there was the description of how they were to live that out. 
And if they actually lived it out, their society would have been a wonderful one where children honoured parents. There wouldn't have been adultery, murder or false witness. It would have been a very good society if they actually lived out uh, their call to live according to God's law. And it promoted and reflected God's values. And the law, as I mentioned earlier, set out the way for the folks to maintain their relationship with God because it provided remedies for sin and provided certain sacrifices. Uh, the faithful Israelite could look forward to the Day of Atonement by the high priest who sacrificed uh, blood of animals for himself and for the people. And so the people could go away thinking of themselves as right before God if they lived in accordance with what God had provided. They could go away thinking of themselves as forgiven and in a, in a right standing with God. And so the law teaches the people about the holiness of God and it teaches them about themselves, that they are sinners who need God's provision to deal with sin. It revealed their shortcomings, but it also revealed the way that God was gracious and would maintain his relationship with the people. But the law, more importantly, provides for Christ. It points towards Christ and it gets us ready for Christ. If it wasn't for the law, we wouldn't have understand the significance of what Jesus has done. And so the law that prescribes the building of the temple and the tabernacle points to Jesus who would be the temple, the supreme place of sacrifice and the supreme meeting place of God and people. The law which outlined the priesthood looks forward to Jesus who was the supreme high priest, the one who mediates between us and God. And the sacrifices anticipate the one who would shed his own blood for us, since it was impossible for the blood of the bulls and goats ever to take away sin completely. And the Passover looks forward to Christ, our Passover lamb, who was sacrificed for us. And so we see that the whole law prepares us for Christ, and it points to Christ in that regard. And yet, in the New Testament, we do find that there are problems with people's handling of the law. And the first problem that we address is the problem of legalism. The Apostle Paul recognises that although salvation was always by God's grace, and it was always to be received through faith or trusting God, some had come to think about the law in ways that had never been intended. Instead of seeing the law as preparing us for the work of Christ and our righteousness that comes through Christ, the law had increasingly been seen as the basis for being righteous before God. And so Paul teaches against this approach to using the law, this kind of legalism or works-based righteousness or a merit-based approach using the law in order to try to get right with God. Paul teaches against that kind of approach to the law in Romans chapter 4. So if you're going to turn up the Bible now, here's, the, here's your big moment, folks, to uh, turn to Romans chapter 4 and we'll have a look at legalism that Paul speaks against. In Romans chapter 4 verse 2, he says... What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? 
If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. Well, Paul's point is that if someone thinks that keeping the law is the basis for life with God, just as wages are given on the basis of work, then they're sadly mistaken because God saves by grace those who put their trust in Jesus, not those who try to earn their way uh, into heaven or into life with him. That kind of approach is also picked up elsewhere in the Bible. We see it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. I'll just read that briefly. You don't have to flip to that one. It's a short one. Paul writes, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So Paul rules out an approach to the law that is legalistic and works-based. And he says it's, it's still by grace, through faith, and it's in Christ. But another problem that uh, Paul warns against in the New Testament is something that might be called uh, exclusivism or Jewish exclusivism. One of the recurring problems in the churches of the New Testament was a situation where many devout Jews had come to faith in Jesus as God's Messiah or as God's King, but who thought that for Gentiles to accept Jesus as King or Jesus as the Messiah, those Gentiles would have to become Jews first. That is, become circumcised and take on the responsibility for observing the Mosaic law. In other words, they thought that Christianity was Judaism, but just with a little extra, with taking on Jesus the Messiah. But when these Jewish Christians told the Gentile Christians they had to become circumcised before they could be real or proper Christians, legitimate Christians, they were saying effectively that the Gentiles couldn't really think of themselves as enjoying salvation with God or forgiveness of sins. They couldn't think of themselves as being the legitimate people of God until they'd undergone circumcision and solemnly pledged themselves to live under the ancient Old Covenant law. And we see that kind of problem crop up in a number of parts of the New Testament, but in particular Galatians and Philippians and in Romans. Now, against that kind of approach, uh, Paul writes to the Galatians and he explains about a time when he went and spoke to the other apostles about the gospel message that he was proclaiming around the world. He'd um, come to realise that Jesus was the Son of God and the gospel that he received, he went and spoke to the other apostles about and showed that they were on the same page. And the other apostles uh, agreed that Yes, that's right, the, the, the Gentiles didn't have to take upon themselves circumcision. Uh, and Paul talks about this situation because, although the apostles said it's okay, other Christian Jews thought that they did. And this is what he says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 3. 
He's speaking about his meeting with the other apostles. He says, Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. He says in verse 4, This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. And so Paul's saying uh, we needed to make sure that Gentiles didn't have to take on circumcision and the old covenant. He makes the point ultimately that circumcision is a matter of the heart anyway. He says in Romans chapter 2, circumcision is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. And he argues against Jewish exclusivism in Romans chapter 3, verse 28. So if you turn to this one, this is quite an important passage. In Romans chapter 3, verse 28 to 30, we see this kind of argument once again. Romans 3, verse 28. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. He's saying if it's a case that you have to take on uh, the Mosaic law and become a Jew effectively before you can uh, trust in Jesus and actually be one of God's people, he's saying, well, then it's, it's God is the God of the Jews only. But that's not how it is. God is also the God of Gentiles. So although the law is a good thing we've seen in the past, there have been problems by the way that people have handled the law. Legalism on the one hand and Jewish exclusivism on the other hand. And those represent bad or misunderstandings of how to use the law. So where does that leave us? How should we be those who handle the law? Well, a good use of the law, in the first instance, we're up to point four, by the way, in the outline. There's plenty of Bible here, I know that. Uh, the first point is that we need to understand that the law has a shelf life. Now, if you think about uh, when you go away on the trip and you leave the milk in the fridge accidentally, when you come back, you know that that milk has a shelf life. It's not going to be worth drinking when you get back from your holiday. Uh, and what we learn from the Apostle Paul in Galatians is that the law, the Old Covenant, also has a shelf life. He talks about it's been uh, put there like a, a tutor or, a, or a, a teacher or a guide until the time of the seed of Abraham, which is Christ, comes. And now that Christ has come, we don't serve under the old covenant, under all the laws that are contained there. The same point was made in the Bible reading in Romans chapter 7 today. Paul compares our relationship with the law, or the old covenant and all the laws, uh, with that of a lady whose husband dies. And he's saying, well, the widow, is uh, the, the first husband's died, and now she's free. She's free to remarry. And he likens that to Christians and the law. 
we're not under the old covenant with all of the laws. Christians aren't required to undergo circumcision. That's of the heart, by the spirit. We're not required to observe food laws and be a distinctive people. We're to be distinctive by the way that we love our neighbour. Paul, uh, I think John says, the mark of a Christian is that they'll know us by our love. We don't offer animal sacrifice. We do offer a sacrifice of praise. And nor do we go to temple. This is not a temple. This is just a, I think, a 1960s or 1970s building. Uh, Jesus is the temple, and we're given his spirit, and collectively we become the temple. And we're not required to live overseas in the promised land, uh, as the law was calling God's people to that place to be the people of God. That's actually just a visual aid or a pattern of, I guess, the renewal of the whole earth that we'll, we'll dwell in as God's people. The Bible reminds us we're not under the old covenant. We saw that in verse 6 of Romans chapter 7. This is what he says, But now, by dying to what bound us, once bound us, we've been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. Paul talks about Christians as those who have died with Christ and have risen with Christ. We're united to Christ and he talks about Christians as those who are a new creation. And so Christians experience a certain kind of freedom. We don't serve God by means of the old covenant and its laws and its customs and practices. And yet Paul insists that the law still has value for us as Christians. We can learn from the insights in the law. In the first place, it still names sin and makes clear our sin and that drives us to Jesus for salvation. In Romans chapter 3, verse 20, he says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So the law still helps us to name sin, just as it named what coveting was. We can see how we fall short, and that drives us to Christ for salvation. And secondly, the law still reveals what's loving, in particular, the moral dimensions of it. And I'm thinking in particular of the Ten Commandments. And Paul speaks about how fulfilling that is actually a good thing to do. It's good to fulfil the law. Here's the last Bible passage for us to look at before I conclude. So turn with me to Romans chapter 13, verse 8. Romans chapter 13, verse 8. And here we see the law reveals what's loving. Romans 13, verse 8. Let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And whatever other commandments there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbour. Therefore, 
Love is the fulfilment of the law. And so a Christian approach to the law sees that love actually fulfills the law. Uh, doing the kinds of things that are outlined in the Ten Commandments, that, those moral dimensions, they become an expression of how we can love. Uh, some have put it that if we treat others along the lines of the Ten Commandments, well, that's some of the most loving thing that we can do. We don't do those things because we're under the law. We're not. We do those things because we're now a new creation in Christ. We've died with Christ, we've been raised with Christ, we're united to Christ. And as God's new creations, that life of love is the one that he's called us to. Well, I'm going to close there and uh, let's close in a word of prayer. Let us pray. And Lord God, we do give you thanks for your great goodness uh, to your people. We thank you that uh, you've saved in the past by your grace and kindness and that that's been received through faith. Lord, we give you thanks for the Lord that it does show us our sin and our need for a saviour and the ways that we do fall short. And Lord, we thank you that we can uh, learn from some of the insights in it about how to live lives which are loving. And so Lord, we do pray for ourselves that as we uh, bring to mind perhaps the ways that we fall short. First and foremost, that we, we do ask for your forgiveness, but we also do ask for your help to grow in godliness and to be those people who do love you and, and to love our neighbour. Lord, we pray for your help to do that. We give you thanks that we've died with Christ and we've been raised with Christ and we're your new creations. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us uh, to fulfil the law, not because we're under it, but because we are your new creations in Christ. Lord, we do thank you for this time that we've had to think about some of these complicated things this morning. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.